Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help me out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the show by donating using the tip jar link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I have an exciting show for everybody. So we have a lot to talk about and I'm going to be all over the place today. We're talking about five separate companies that I've been kind of invested in or not uh, short or long over the last little while. So we're going to give some updates on that, see where we're at, and kind of make some decisions on what we're going to do moving forward. But that's pretty much going to be the show, and all the companies are listed here in the video. But uh, yeah, it should be pretty good. And then the larger part of the video today, we're going to talk about Moderna and the interim data that they released for their phase one study with their SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Like I mentioned last time, unfortunately, California has added a bunch of restrictions for everything, so I have been under lockdown for the most part. Uh, I have been able to play ice hockey a couple times, so I've been pretty lucky to be able to do some kind of exercise because all the gyms are unfortunately um, closed entirely. So that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm at. But with that, let's just get right into it. And the first company I want to talk about is Regenix Bio, ticker symbol RGNX. And they traded on Friday with a market cap of around $1.5 billion. And they have a bunch of gene therapy candidates that they're moving through the pipeline. So they have their in-house programs that they're doing, and there's a variety of different diseases. Wet AMD, um, hypercholesterolemia is one, and as well as some rare diseases. But they also have an out-licensing program where they're very good at generating these viruses and then licensing them out to other companies in order for them to be able to develop them for different diseases. And one of these is the Avexis drug for spinal muscular atrophy. Now, the major candidate that I'm interested in with regards to this company is RGX314, and the reason for that is they're going after the wet AMD market as well as the diabetic retinopathy market. And the number of patients that are actually being treated with existing therapies for these is extremely high. So I see significant upside in the stock because if they're able to get indications for both of these, uh, it'd be a huge revenue generator for the company. And I would expect their market cap being much closer to around $10 billion. And now there's some interesting things about the drug. It's a gene therapy, and right now the only way they've been studying it is through the injection in the subretinal space. And this is a very cumbersome way to uh, inject the drug. The approved treatments right now for wet AMD are given in the intravitreal space which is a lot easier on the patient, but the problem is that patients need injections monthly. So what Regenix Bio is hoping to do is to overcome the monthly injection thing by allowing just a single injection or maybe two injections over the course of a lifetime to introduce this anti-VEGF gene in order to get the cells endogenously producing it and preventing the problems associated with wet AMD or diabetic retinopathy. But like I mentioned, RGX314 right now can only be given subretinally, but they're also working with another company called ClearSide to come up with a method to inject in the suprachoroidal space. And suprachoroidal delivery is actually a lot easier than the subretinal injection. I've touched on all this in a previous video, but I'm just kind of reiterating for people who don't know. So it's very important for them to get their suprachoroidal delivery up to par, much like their subretinal delivery, so that this can kind of overtake the space. And I think that one will be very competitive in this market. And right now, like I mentioned, the market's dominated by a few different treatments right now, and they're able to generate in the billions and billions of revenue. So 
This uh, could be huge for Regenix Bio if they can move this forward. I've outlined here in the presentation some of the side effects that are in association with the delivery of RGX314. So the side effects associated with the actual treatment themselves don't seem that bad, but with the delivery method, there are some crazy ones that we should be concerned about. One was a retinal detachment, uh, which is not good, and another one, this endothalmitis, and I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it's a severe adverse event. So all this is to say that hopefully their suprachoroidal delivery can get ramped up and they can see similar results as their subretinal delivery so that it can then be a lot easier for patients to switch from ILEA or Lucentis and move into RGX314. So just to show some of the data with the subretinal RGX314, I'm going to blow this up here. And basically what we're looking at is the different doses of RGX314 and comparing the number of annualized injections that patients need. So we can see here in the prior to treatment, they need around 10 injections per year to prevent the negative effects associated with AMD. However, if they get the gene therapy, RGX314, they're able to reduce these annualized injections down to almost zero. In cohort five, the mean post RGX 314 annualized rate after six months is 1.5, and then after two years, it's down to zero. So really, this is a, an effective treatment that is able to prevent patients from needing injections that are monthly. So where the company's at right now, they have around 357 million in cash as of Q1 in 2020 and they think that this will be good until the year 2022. So that's a good thing. We don't have too much risk of a capital raise. And then in terms of catalysts, the subretinal wet AMD, they're going to initiate a pivotal program in the second half of this year. They're doing their suprachoroidal wet AMD initiation of phase two trial in the first half of 2020. So that should have started by now. And then they're also doing suprachoroidal diabetic retinopathy IND submission in the middle of 2020. So they're very much moving forward with the suprachoroidal delivery, which is great news uh, because I think it'll be a very impressive technology when all is said and done. I'm not going to touch too much on their other programs. They do have some other interesting things, but the magnitude of the market of wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy is going to be the real game changer for Regenix Bio. If you want to look at other plays, Regenix Bio does have some competitors. Adverum is also trying to move through a wet AMD gene therapy treatment. And Kodiak Biosciences has a similar therapy, but it's not a gene therapy. But it is effective, and the data looks pretty good. And I think KOD has some nice institutional backing as well. So look at those companies if you want somebody to compare to. But I, uh, I'm staying firm with my Regenix Bio position and holding strong. To move on... I want to talk a little bit about Odonate Therapeutics, and they closed on Friday at a 1.26 billion market cap. I think the stock traded at the high 39s, and they're an interesting company because they're commercializing a taxane therapy, which is normally given by intravenous infusion, where patients who have breast cancer need to go to a facility and sit for sometimes hours, I believe, to get their taxane therapy infused. And what Odonate has done is they've reformulated taxane so that it can be taken orally, which supersedes the need to go to a facility and it makes it much easier on patients. So the upcoming catalyst is the pivotal phase three results for HER2 negative hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer with prior taxane therapy. 
And this is going to be a big trial for them because if they see positive results here and the phase two data look pretty good, they have a very high likelihood of getting approval. Now, the valuation of the company as it is, I think is anticipating good data. So I'd be very careful about taking a position up here. I could see it move higher, but there's greater downside risk in case things don't go well. But also I could see the stock kind of quickly sell off after some very good news because we haven't seen pricing information yet from Odonate on what they would hope to gain. And the model that I put together, I think was a very generous pricing, given that this is gonna be an easier treatment for patients to take and it might be more effective than normal taxanes. So even with my very generous pricing model, I felt that a valuation of $1 billion was even too high. So for me, I'm gonna wait this out and see how things react. And it might even be a good short opportunity if the stock really goes high. The company has $150 million in cash as of Q1 of 2020, and this should be good until 2021 given the amount that they spend and it should be good until the data is released and this data is going to be very important for the company so i'm going to be keeping my eye on that but not much else to say about odonate very simple company and a simple business model that should do them well in the long run but the valuation right now i think is a little heavy moving on i want to talk about axivant gene therapies ticker symbol axgt and their market cap as of close on Friday is $136 million, with a price per share of $3.38. They were hanging out in the mid-twos for a long time, and we've seen some more activity with the stock, and it's been holding in the threes actually quite nicely. They have a net cash position of $53 million as of Q1 of 2020, and their average quarterly loss is around $18 million. So... Uh, there is a, a bit of a risk here that they are going to raise before data comes. I'm not too sure, but we'll talk about that in a second. So the gene therapies that they're looking at, basically two programs. One is for Parkinson's disease, and another one is for kind of generally rare diseases. This includes gangliosidosis, as well as Tay-Sachs and Sanhoff disease. So they're, they're kind of in the rare disease category, but if they are able to show success here, it should garner a better valuation, even though the market's not that big for a lot of these diseases. But the main asset that I'm interested in for them is this AXO Lenti PD. And the reason for this is that the Parkinson's disease market is very, very big, and there aren't great treatments right now. Levodopa has been on the market for a long time, and it's a very difficult drug to dial in. And what I mean by that is that the therapeutic window for levodopa is very narrow, such that patients can easily take too much levodopa and then get the negative side effects associated with it, which can be pretty debilitating, as well as the disease Parkinson's as well. So patients have to be very careful when they're taking levodopa not to take too much, and then they also don't want to take too little, which would ex exacerbate the Parkinson's symptoms. So it's very much a difficult process that they have to get dialed in with their doctor. So what Axivant is trying to do here is introduce three genes with the gene therapy that would give kind of a steady state of dopamine production by forcing, and I say forcing loosely, uh, tyrosine to get made into dopamine. And this steady state would be such that it would be a lot easier for patients to remain in that therapeutic window without the big uh, peaks and troughs that occur when taking it orally. So that's what they're trying to do. And right now they're in a dose escalation phase one study. And as of right now, the data looks okay, but we're gonna see six month data coming out in Q4 of 2020. 
So this is going to show us whether or not there's some durability associated with the earlier dose patients and whether or not the higher dose patients are actually able to get like sustained levels of dopamine that don't go kind of too high and don't go kind of too low. So we're really looking for that nice steady state amount of dopamine that's produced. Now, with regards to their other products, I'm not going to touch too much on them. There is a readout in Q4 of 2020 for this AXO AAV GM1 product. And if that goes well, that should also increase the stock just to really verify or confirm Axivan's ability to develop these gene therapies into a clinically relevant product. So um, we'll see how that looks. I think if they do raise before the data comes out, I might double down because my position right now is relatively small. And I think there is a good chance that this could be a huge win if the data looks good. So that's Axivan. Next company I want to talk about is one called Catalyst Bio, ticker symbol CBIO, and they're also trading at around $131 million market cap. They have a net cash position of $97 million as of Q1 in 2020, and they did do a $30 million raise earlier in the year, and their average quarterly loss is around $10 million. What Catalyst is trying to do is commercialize hemophilia assets that are able to be given subcutaneously. So in the hemophilia world, patients are able to take recombinant factors to replace those that are lost in their disease. However, the way that these are delivered are through intravenous methods, such that they also have very high peaks and very low troughs. And what this means is they need to be very careful when they're in that trough position not to have any bleeds, and it also means that they have to inject very often. And when it's an intravenous injection, it's a little bit more difficult than say a subcutaneous injection because they have to find the vein and be very good at, or they have to be trained at least in injecting in the vein specifically. So what Catalyst sees as an opportunity is to develop assets that can be given subcutaneously, which is a lot easier, and it also improves the pharmacokinetics such that the peaks and troughs are actually smoothed out. So actually a lot like Axivant therapies, they're hoping to make this uh, pharmacokinetic profile smoother such that they don't have a very high amount of activity in very short term that could actually pose a risk of blood clots as well and smoothing that out over time so they might need fewer injections less often. Now I've shown on the page here the data, their phase one data and what patients have to do are three times over the course of say three hours subcutaneous injections at 60 microgram per kg and then what they get is this nice increase in the drug and it stays in there for around 48 hours before they have to redo this again in order to be protected against bleeds so what Callus has done is they're going to take the information they got from this dose escalation trial and move it into phase three in collaboration with the FDA. So they've mentioned that they've spoken with the FDA and are ready to go for this phase three trial, which should start in the second half of this year. So the name of this drug, the most important one in my opinion, is Marceptagog Alpha, and it's treatment for hemophilia A or B, or people who are specifically deficient in factor seven. And just to give an idea of the size of the market, uh, Novo 7, which is currently approved for this treatment, had sales in 2018 of $1.2 billion. So you can imagine that seeing positive data in a phase three would significantly raise the value of this company, given that they're only trading at $131 million today. The other assets that they have, Dalsinonicog Alpha is a recombinant factor 9 for hemophilia B specifically. 
and they showed efficacy data in phase two, but they didn't really talk about a strategy moving forward. I think one criticism I have of this company is they aren't very clear with their forward strategy and how the timelines are going to work out. So it makes it a little bit convoluted in terms of when we should take a position or not. But specifically for their Delsinonicog Alpha program, they did not really outline any path forward for this drug. Part of me thinks they're going to kill it because they have introduced a gene therapy specifically for hemophilia B. Now that one is very early in development, so I'm not really using this as a justification to take a position, but I could see them killing this program in order to move into this gene therapy. Now the last product they have is an anti-C3 protease. And I've not really talked about the complement system because it's a little bit convoluted even for me to understand, but uh, they're looking to use this for a treatment of dry age-related macular degeneration. And I spoke earlier today about wet AMD, and this is the dry AMD version. So often you'll start with dry AMD, that gets worse and worse, and then eventually starts turning into wet AMD. But the issue with dry AMD is that it's usually asymptomatic until you get to the later stages of it. So specifically what Catalyst Bio is going after is the subset of patients that have dry AMD that's called geographic atrophy. So this is late stage dry AMD. And apparently this does have symptoms associated with it, such that patients would seek out a treatment to prevent it from getting worse or eventually switching to wet AMD. So it's a very large market potential. The number of patients that have dry AMD are much higher than those that have wet AMD, but we haven't been given too much insight about readouts or trials. I think they're still in the preclinical stages and uh, they'll need to talk about some IND enabling activities before I get too excited. So I, uh, I have a small position in CBio and I'm gonna hold on to it. I don't like that there's not many upcoming catalysts, but because the position's so small, I feel justified in just bag holding it pretty much. And uh, I might add to it once we start to get an idea of when we're gonna see some data or some registrational trials going. So that's Catalyst Bio. And the last company I wanna talk about is Moderna, ticker symbol mRNA. And they closed on Friday, if you can believe this, at $37 billion. The excitement that the market has over the stock right now is the publication of interim phase one data of their molecule mRNA-1273, which is a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And basically what they saw, and to give a big caveat before I get into this, I'm not an immunologist per se. I understand the immunologic system in a broad sense, but there's a lot of specifics that come with understanding immunology that I really don't have. So. Definitely follow your local immunologist on Twitter or whatever to get the, the real juicy takes. But I still feel confident in my judgment of what we're seeing in the data. And basically what it looks like is the vaccine is able to give a humoral response. And what I mean by that is a B cell response. The data that we saw, and they were pretty exhaustive in the number of different binding assays that they did. But the one to me that was most substantial was this PRNT. 80 assay, and this is a neutralizing assay. And I've talked about these in a prior video, but just to roughly go over it, what they do is they take serum from patients that were treated with the virus, and they do a serial dilution. Then what they do is they mix that diluted serum, that whole series of different diluted serums, with a live SARS-CoV-2 virus. What they then do is treat that on a monolayer or a suspension of cells and there's some kind of readout that can measure whether or not 
the live virus that was mixed with the serum can infect the cells in the dish. If it's a very effective vaccine, you won't see any infectivity along the whole series of dilutions. What they're measuring here, and I'll just blow this up on the video, what they're showing here is the geometric mean titer, which means the inverse of the dilution at which 80% of the infection was prevented by mixing with the serum of patients that were treated with the vaccine. And what we're seeing here compared to convalescent serum and also compared to patients before they were treated with the vaccine is that at day 43, we're able to see a very nice amount of viral infection inhibition in patients that were actually given the vaccine. Now what this doesn't tell us is how well this is able to prevent an actual infection if you're re-exposed to the virus. But it does show that compared to people who were infected, which is what the convalescent serum uh, column is here, and they only had three patients unfortunately, but given that the timeline at which patients get infected, I think it's relatively tough to get convalescent serum quickly enough to have these studies done. But I'm taking it on face value that this is a, an appropriate average, but what this does say that in vitro, they can prevent a lot of infectivity of SARS-CoV-2 when they mix, when they use this serum. And this is very, you know, in general, you expect this to be predictive of an in vivo situation. So to me, this looks like the vaccine is able to mount a very good antibody response in its ability to prevent infection. Now, Having said that, there were a lot of side effects associated with the vaccine, especially in the 250 microgram dose. Now they're not using this dose for their phase two or phase three studies, but even in the 100 microgram dose, we see that all patients on second vaccination had a side effect. Now most of them were just headaches or pain, but you gotta consider that these are all healthy volunteers. And compare that to the demographic that really needs this vaccine, which are elderly people, you know, it makes you worry about how they're gonna be able to tolerate it. Now, I'm not super concerned about this because none of these side effects were anything like anaphylaxis or fever. I think there was one fever in the 250 microgram dose, but no anaphylaxis. I think that that's a pretty good sign, even though we have to still wait and see. Keep in mind that this is interim data for their phase one study, and I think we're gonna see more data come out, obviously with their phase two and phase three. But so far, I think this looks okay from a antibody perspective, they are able to see a nice antibody response in these patients. We don't know how durable it is, and we don't know whether or not it is able to prevent reinfection, but I think it's a good start. The other thing we need to be mindful of is that there is a publication coming out on Monday from Oxford and AstraZeneca and their vaccine, and reports that we've seen, and you know, these are just preliminary reports of what they're going to publish, it's a robust response from B cells and T cells in their ability to generate a protective response against SARS-CoV-2. So we'll see how that goes. I'll probably look into it and give an update on that once we find out. But the last thing I want to touch on when it comes to Moderna is this T cell response. And a lot of people have been talking about this on Twitter. In my reading, it seems like being able to mount a good T cell response is very important in a durable vaccination. So what we want is a nice Th1 CD4 response as well as a cytotoxic CD8 response. What Moderna was able to show is that some cells at day 43 are able to mount a nice CD4 Th1 helper response 
but they weren't able to really see a solid CD8 response. But I have to put a caveat here is we don't ultimately know whether or not we need this kind of response or whether or not having this response is going to maintain some kind of immunity here. So it's still early in our understanding of the virus. But what I wanted to point out here also is that the scale bar is kind of interesting. So they say for the C for both of these percentage of T cells. So I'm not too sure whether or not that means 0.2% out of 100 or that means 20%. Because if it's 0.2 out of 100, that means that there's 99.8 of CD4 T cells that aren't mounting this Th1 response. So I'm not too sure how that shakes out, but we see here that the CD8 T cells are, are relatively muted in their response to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And in some of the reviews I've read, uh, there's a very good correlation right now between low CD8 T cell numbers and the severity of COVID-19. And we don't ultimately know right now why this happens, or is the virus able to ablate CD8 T cells, or are they just sequestered into different tissues? It's not very clear right now, but I think what people are going to say here, and what people have said, is that because Moderna can't generate a very robust T cell response, the vaccine might have to be given more than just twice. And I think that this is a possibility if this is the best that the vaccine can do, but it remains to be seen whether or not this data holds true in the phase two and phase three trials. So I'm optimistic about it, but I think there might be more work to be done in order to really generate you know, a robust T cell response that's durable because as we know in convalescent patients, the antibody response isn't very long-term. So if the T cell response can be more enduring, then I think we can hope to get more immunity because I don't think people would like to take a vaccine more than twice if they don't need to. And, you know, we'll see how the AstraZeneca data looks. If they can generate a very robust, enduring T-cell response, maybe that'll be the vaccine that takes it all. But I think Moderna at this valuation is crazily overvalued. It looks like it will be amongst different vaccines that will be approved. And I know it's still early, so I'm just, you know, giving my prediction here, which could be wrong, could be subject to change. But uh, $37 billion valuation is very, very high in my opinion, but it uh, it is nice to see them give a full account, relatively full considering it's phase one interim data, compared to the press release that they announced, which I thought left a lot to be desired. So that's Moderna. We'll talk about AstraZeneca and their data in, uh, in a follow-up, but that's all I got for you guys today, and I just want to do a quick portfolio wrap-up. I added back the IOVA stock that I mentioned that I bought before, and also put in the 86 bio purchase that I made and I might double down on them as well because they've been doing really well but I still think that their valuation is, is attractive given that we're going to see some very interesting data coming out. Otherwise we're sitting at minus six year to date and that is sitting just above the Dow Jones and I'm trying to catch up to the S&P 500 but the NASDAQ, the XBI as well as the IBB continue to massively outperform the SPX as well as the Dow Jones and my own portfolio, but we're at the back half of the year and I think we got a good run ahead of us. So with that, I'm gonna wrap it up, but I wanna thank everybody for their attention. Appreciate all the support I've been getting. If you wanna help out the show, click that subscribe button. Also click the like button, that would help me out. And there is a tip jar link in the description if you wanna help out financially. But again, appreciate everything. Thank you guys and I'll see you next time.